Hola, pasajeros, y bienvenido a bordo. Yo soy el conductor, el papi chulo más gordo. This train's headed for Spain, but we'll make a few stops. ¿Qué pasa con los markets riding on the rocks? Un otro semana de losses, stocks getting tossed like sangria on the rocks. Tickety tock, tick boom. Did we wrongfully assume that the Fed didn't see more inflation up ahead? And the terminal rate keeps rising. Is that so surprising? We gotta keep resizing our positions, recalibrate conditions, identify resistance. Remember that persistence is what matters when the market is in tatters. Assets rise and assets fall, but educated investors, we ride through it all. We gotta stay focused, mantenemos concentrado. Hold on tight in cualquier lado. Stay nimble, stay ready, mantente preparado. Sin stress, montamos así en el Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. The Express is international this week, but we are keeping our eyes on the chop in the U.S. equity markets, which are coming off their worst week so far this year. The S&P 500 fell 2.7% last week, the Dow 3% for its fourth straight losing week, and the Nasdaq closed 3.3% lower, its second negative week in three. Is this a normal pullback after a red-hot January, or is it the realization that inflation is still sticky high and the Fed's going to keep raising rates to bring it down? The PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index for January, came in a little hotter than expected, rising 0.6% from December at a 4.7% annual rate. The Fed wants that closer to 2%, but that seems a long way off. Or maybe, just maybe, there was too much froth in the capital markets and we are in a froth-free zone all of a sudden. We've been talking about exuberant options activity, a massive rally in crypto, and the return of a few meme stocks lately, and those are all signs that someone spiked the punch bowl way too early in the party. Or maybe it's growing geopolitical risk. It's now been over a year since Russia invaded Ukraine, and the situation seems to be getting even more intense, with China and the U.S. being sucked deeper into the conflict. Well, it's probably all of the above. Add in some sanguine forecasts and guidance from companies like Walmart and Home Depot, which are both telling us that the consumer is losing its spending appetite, and somebody better roll down the window because sentiment stinks right now, which leads us right into our big three for the week. Number one, it's not just that sentiment stinks, it's that money is following it out the window. After leaning on the buy button throughout January, investors dumped stocks and cash in the past week at a pretty strong clip. According to EPFR Global Data, $7 billion came out of global equity funds, $3.0 billion came out of cash funds, and $4.9 billion went into bond and bond funds. That's the eighth consecutive week of big bond flows, the longest since November of 2021. Investors, especially big investors, clearly prefer owning debt with yields in the 4-6% range than placing their bets on further gains for stocks right now. That could all change, but remember that the dynamics are very different than they were in 2021. Rising interest rates, high inflation, low unemployment, and slowing growth are the waters we swim in today. Get comfortable with that. Number two, if you want to get a clearer picture of what's happening inside the stock market without getting distracted by individual names, look at the Value Line Geometric Index. The Value Line Composite Index is a stock index containing about 1,700 companies from the New York Stock Exchange, the American Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, Toronto, and over-the-counter markets. It was created by Arnold Bernhard, the founder and CEO of Value Line Inc., who publishes it every month. It's a good representation of the performance of the median stock, not just the biggest and the most popular. And as our pal J.C. Peretz points out, the price of the value line index has found resistance at its 2018 highs, right around the 595 level. As long as the value line index is below the 595 level, stocks could remain under pressure. Add the value line index to your chart list and keep an eye on those levels. And number three, where did all the 401k millionaires go? 
Well, according to Fidelity, about one-third of the 401k accounts it manages fell off the seven-figure list in last year's bear market. At the end of 2021, Fidelity hosted around 442,000 401ks worth over a million dollars. That number is down to 299,000 as of January 1st of this year, as the average 401k lost 20% of its value last year. Most of those 401ks were stuck with the largest equity funds, which hold the largest stocks, which are held by the most investors. That type of portfolio concentration is great in boom times, but when the tracks get rough like they did last year, it's hard to stop the downward momentum that bear markets create. As portfolios deteriorate, look out for the wealth effect to downshift with it, and that usually means lower spending ahead. Let's get set up for a busy week ahead, and it starts with more earnings report cards from big retailers like Target, Lowe's, and Costco. Walmart and Home Depot told us last week that consumers keep spending, but they may be losing their steam. We're going to be paying close attention to what Target and Costco say about inventory levels and about the average ticket price per customer. We're also going to get results from widely held and widely followed companies, including Zoom, AutoZone, HP, and Broadcom, among others. Broadly speaking, earnings have experienced their slowest growth since 2020, and the path to recovery is very choppy. In fact, the gap between the S&P 500's earnings yield, or profit growth potential per share, and the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is 1.6%. That's the lowest since 2007. You wonder why so many investors are piling into government bonds lately? There you go. On the economic front here in the U.S., we're going to get the latest readings on January pending home sales. Those continue to decline, as well as national home prices, which are also showing signs of cracking in major markets across the country. We're also going to get the latest survey readings from the Purchasing Managers Index and the Institute for Supply Management. Both have been flashing recessionary signals in recent months. Tesla will be back in the spotlight this week as well as Elon Musk will host an Investor Day event on March 1st from the company's Gigafactory in Texas. Musk may reveal the third part of the EV maker's master plan, which could include details of its Generation 3 platform, which is designed to make vehicle production cheaper in the future. Remember, part one of that master plan was Tesla's introduction of the Tesla Roadster to the mass market. That was all the way back in 2006. Part two was the integration of energy generation and storage technologies, along with autonomous driving, as well as solar-powered batteries. The third part is reportedly focused on bringing all those technologies together, including the Cybertruck, the Tesla robot, autonomous driving, energy storage, and whatever else Musk has up his sleeve. We may also hear news about a capital allocation plan that could include stock buybacks or some other form of shareholder enticements. Shares of Tesla are up 60% so far this year, folks, but they're still down 27% in the past year. This week will also be a big week for the future of student loans in the United States. On Tuesday, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear two cases that could determine the fate of President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. That program, announced on August 24, 2022, seeks to cancel $10,000 of student loan debt per eligible borrower or up to $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients. If the Supreme Court upholds that program, more than 40 million borrowers could see part or all of their student loan debt canceled, costing the government some $400 billion. If the courts block the program, however, borrowers could face greater financial hardship in paying down student loan debt compared to before the pandemic as interest rates have been rising, particularly once the pause on student loan repayments expires later this year. Investopedia is going to be all over that story this week. The Express was in Spain last week where I went with my family for a few days of vacation. First time for me, but it won't be the last. I can promise you that. The food, the wine, the architecture, the people, the sea, la sensación, todo hermoso. But 
Like a lot of European countries, Spain is on the precipice. It has climbed out of a deep economic hole brought on by the pandemic thanks to a strong rebound in tourism and the services part of the economy. But below the surface lie some deep structural challenges that threaten the continued recovery of this beautiful country. Spain has a complicated history, to say the least. We can't do it justice in just a few minutes, of course, but here are some basics about Spain's economy that are important to know before we take a deep dive into Spain's economic health and what lies ahead for El Reino de España as it is still called today. The pandemic hit Spain harder than its European counterparts due to its heavy reliance on tourism, which makes up about two-thirds of the country's GDP and employs 76% of its working population. Spain is the second most popular tourist destination in the world, and I completely understand why that's the case. GDP fell 10.8% in 2020, and the unemployment rate spiked to 15.5%. Spain's always had relatively high unemployment, especially youth unemployment, but the pandemic exacerbated that. Economic growth rebounded in 2021 as tourism reopened and GDP climbed to 5.1%, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine just over a year ago caused a spike in energy prices, particularly natural gas, which all European countries rely pretty heavily on. Inflation spiked to 8.6% last year, not as high as other countries, but when median annual income is less than $28,000 a year, that hurts, and there are millions of workers who are not on the books in Spain, so to speak. The Spanish government cut the value-added tax, or VAT, on electricity and gas prices last year and took other measures to help reduce the high energy prices on lower-income families. And then last year, the EU passed the RRF, the Recovery and Resilience Facility, which totaled more than 780 billion euro, and that's a government spending program to rebuild Europe towards a greener, less fossil fuel-dependent economy, kind of like the Inflation Reduction Act here in the U.S. Spain uses a lot of fossil fuels, especially for industrial production, which accounts for more than 20% of GDP, and agricultural production, which accounts for about 2.5% of GDP. Spain's the largest producer of olive oil and the world's third largest producer of wine. The country is one of the largest producers of oranges and strawberries in the world, but it also produces sugar beets, barley, tomatoes, olives, citrus fruits, grapes, and cork and fish. A lot of fish. Take two steps into the Mercado Central in Barcelona, and you'll know exactly what I mean. Barcelona is a magical city. It's part of Catalonia, which is a semi-autonomous region in northeast Spain with a distinct history dating back almost 1,000 years. It's the wealthiest region of Spain with about 7.5 million people, and it has its own language, parliament, flag, anthem, and police force, among other services. Catalan nationalists have complained for centuries that their region sends too much money to the poorer parts of Spain as taxes are controlled by Madrid, the capital. In a referendum on October 1st, 2017, declared illegal by Spain's constitutional court, about 90% of Catalan voters backed independence. But the turnout was only 43%, and the aftermath was ugly. The ruling separatists in the Catalan parliament declared independence on October 27th, and the Spanish government came down hard as Madrid imposed direct rule by invoking Article 155 of the Constitution, the first time that's ever happened in Spain. The Spanish government sacked the Catalan leaders, dissolved parliament, and called a snap regional election on the 21st of December 2017, which nationalist parties won. Throughout Barcelona and Catalonia, there are signs calling for amnistia y libertad, amnesty and freedom. The division between Catalans and Spaniards is palpable throughout this region. So you have a country divided, which has been the case for centuries, and an economy that is heavily reliant on tourism and exports for its economic survival. That's a tricky recipe at a time when consumers and businesses may be pulling back around the world. To get a better understanding of where Spain is today and where it's headed, I reached out to an expert who grew up in Catalonia and knows this land well. 
My name is Angel Talavera. I am the head of the European economics team at Oxford Economics in London. Thanks so much for being with us. If you look at the numbers in Spain, especially GDP, Spain looks like it bounced back pretty strongly from COVID in 2022, thanks to tourism, but the economy is slowing like it is in the rest of Europe, and unemployment is still pretty high, above 12%. Youth unemployment here is even higher. That's always kind of been the case. Give us how you would take the temperature of the Spanish economy right now. I think uh, there's a lot of things to highlight, probably. I would say that when you look at GDP numbers, the last two years, we have seen a strong recovery. That's true. But that's probably true of most European economies and probably all Western economies. And part of that reflects a big, large fall in GDP in 2020. And in fact, Spain has not recovered its pre-crisis GDP level yet. So I would say that I have to be a bit careful with some of these numbers that look very large, look like a very strong rebound. And it's true that it comes from a really deep hole in 2020. So from a macro, from a GDP perspective, Spain is doing okay but probably not as well as we have thought maybe a year ago. If you look at the comps, all countries look like they're doing okay because we came out of such a rough end of 2020. 2021 was terrible. 2022, big bounce back. And now this economy and a lot of others are facing headwinds. Some of that is the fact that there wasn't a full recovery. Some of that is because energy prices are high and inflation is still pretty high. What's still dragging on the Spanish economy today? Yeah, I think the cost of living crisis, as they call it here in the UK, or the inflation crisis, I think that's probably the main issue now. And I think it's the one that really is on everyone's mind. I think we've moved from a situation in the economic cycle where we were really concerned with the COVID shock that we might see a depression. I think the government policies across the world really prevented that. And I think that was a great success that maybe has not been publicized as much as we should, because now we just basically avoided that scenario. But now we moved to one in which we've seen inflation of the kind we have not seen in probably 40 or 50 years. There's a lot of people alive that have never seen inflation in double digits. And I think that's a shock to everyone. I mean, the idea of going to the supermarket and seeing that things are costly 10, 20% more than a few months ago, a year ago, is something that older people may were used to, especially in Spain back in the day, inflation used to be quite high. But for a long time, we haven't seen inflation of this kind in Europe or anywhere else in the world, except for maybe the economies such as Argentina, Venezuela, these countries that are a little more troubled. Spain is part of the EU. The EU took some measures in 2022 to mitigate the impact of these high energy prices. A lot of that caused by Russia's invasion, continued invasion of Ukraine, but high energy prices in general. So they reduced the VAT taxes. What other measures has the Spanish government taken to sort of reduce the impact and ease the burden on folks? They did uh, quite a lot of fiscal cuts or temporary relief measures on, for example, fuels, things that are deemed quite critical for most people. They're not considering doing some intervention in food prices, which I think probably would not happen because I think that's maybe taking it a bit too far. We have to remember that the current government in Spain is a coalition of center-left party and a rather quite far-left party. And some of the ideas that have been proposed are maybe now pushing the envelope a bit in terms of what the economic orthodoxy of a typical center-left government would do. But there's been quite a few measures that at least have provided some temporary relief. There was a mechanism in which Spain and Portugal also were allowed to limit the increase in natural gas prices, which were the main issue or the main driver of energy inflation in 2022. And so all these things combined have actually managed to bring inflation down from around 10, 10.5% to something around 55 So it's quite a big relief, but it's still we're still talking about inflation numbers that are historically very high. 
and the GDP per capita is higher than a lot of other European countries, but still not that high. Folks don't make a lot of money here, except if they work in certain industries. So in terms of the feel on the ground with people living their normal day-to-day lives, not necessarily in the big tourist towns like Barcelona, but in other places, how is that manifesting itself in terms of the amount of money people make, the amount they're able to take home to be able to pay their bills? Yeah, you don't you don't move to Spain to make a lot of money. That's true. I think the opposite is true. People like myself and many others have actually left the country in part because of the scarcity of professional opportunities for well-educated people. So that's a problem. It's not a new problem. It's a problem that we have for decades now. It's a brain drain. You see this in happening in Italy, in Greece, in Portugal. The southern European economies, unfortunately, all have similar patterns in terms of lack of professional opportunities for well-educated young people, especially. The cost of living in Spain is obviously lower than, say, for an average person living in, in the U.S. or in Northern Europe. But even then, I think a lot of people in Spain, they just adjust their belts. They have to basically live with not a lot. You basically adjust to a standards of living that probably would be considered a bit low for other economies. You have all the things that can make up for that. I mean, you have very nice weather and you have probably good social services. A quality of living, I think, is still generally good. But in terms of pure accumulation of goods, it's probably a country in which the standard of living is not as high as something that you might see in countries like, say, Northern Europe or the United States, for example. Spain has a complicated history. I'm here in Barcelona. Barcelona is hopping right now. If you're walking around in Barcelonita, if you're walking around in the Gothic Quarter, you're seeing restaurants full, tough to get a reservation. There seems to be a lot of activity, but this is Barcelona. This is Catalonia. There's always been a dichotomy here. It goes back centuries. If you can briefly characterize the situation here where the economy in this part of the country seems relatively strong, probably because of the tourism, but you don't necessarily have that balance throughout the country. Even an hour outside of Barcelona, you can feel that it's a very different type of environment? Yeah, I think it's not that different from many other countries in which you have a few regional centers that accumulate most of the wealth. Barcelona has traditionally been one of the richest cities in Spain. The region as a whole, Catalonia, have been always been one of the main economic engines of Spain. You have Madrid also. You typically have the Basque country, probably as the three pillars of growth for Spain. In recent years, there's maybe have been others. But I think there's a big problem in Spain with the difference between these major cities or the areas that are doing quite well in a big part in the middle of the country, which is basically now becoming quite empty. There is a thing in Spain that's called La España Vaciada, which is the empty Spain, which is an issue in which essentially entire areas are dying because no one's moving there. People are just basically aging and eventually dying and no one really comes back. And so all those towns and all those areas are just becoming economically unviable. Basically, there's nothing to do. There's no industry. There's no services. And they will become essentially extinct unless there's a big reversal. So in that way, Barcelona obviously has a more dynamic city, a more dynamic economy. There's more opportunities and people are doing generally well. Employment rates are lower than the average of Spain. Madrid probably, I would say, even more so. In the last few years, there's been quite a large divergence between Madrid and the rest of Spain in terms of doing better economically. So it has a lot of gravitational pull because of the government is there and a lot of the industries and business centers are located there. But probably one of the biggest debates happening now in Spain, actually, in terms of how to readdress this situation in which a big, large part of Spain felt like they're being left behind. Obviously, tourism is a very big industry here. Agriculture is a very big industry here. What other industries are driving the country and what industries could drive the country forward through the next decade? Well, that's a very good question. We had in the 2000s, for example, real estate and construction was a huge driver of growth. We had a big collapse in real estate and housing. And after that, it felt like 
those industries will never come back. I start to feel that maybe they are starting to come back, not at the same scale as they did back in the 2000s, which is a good thing because that was not sustainable. But those are two elements uh, or two industries that I think would always do well. Spain's traditionally the culture of home ownership and there's a lot of obviously of tourism coming here also to own real estate. After Brexit, they still have a lot of British, um, French, German owning real estate. So I think construction real estate sector will always be a big part of growth in Spain. I think the problem in Spain is that it's still, as of today, despite many several efforts by several governments, a very services-oriented industry. And within services, as you say, very tourism-oriented, very hotels, restaurants, bars, that kind of uh, business. And it is a very difficult and very challenging for a country to change its basically its growth model or its industrial model. There's a lot of talk in Spain, as far as I can remember, of trying to change this model, trying to change the economy. There's very few countries in the history that I think have been able to effectively change from a basically a developing economy into a proper industrial economy or a high-tech economy. You think maybe Taiwan, Korea back in the day, but there are now many examples of countries being able to do the transformation effectively. So I think in the short and medium term, most likely Spain will continue to be the same kind of country as it is now, service-oriented and probably benefiting still from its natural good luck, I would say, in terms of weather and landscapes. How do people build wealth? It seems like people work in the same job for many, many years here, make careers out of working in the food services industry as a waiter and the hotel industry. Is there a culture of investing? Is there a culture of wealth building? Or has that been sort of growing over the past few years? Or is that missing from this country so that there is no real path to, to wealth accumulation for younger people? Well, wealth building tradition in Spain means owning real estate. And that, I think, hasn't changed much in the last 30, 40, or 50 years. I think that's the main way by which any average Spanish person builds wealth. And some of them actually cannot have built quite a large amount of wealth for a country where you think that the average salary looks pretty low. So I would say that that's the main way. I don't think you could maybe probably expect really in Spain to build wealth in many other ways. You're not going to have a lot of big, large fortunes or even a large upper middle class that you might see in, in other countries. Spain, I think, has like a much larger share of the average middle or lower middle class. But there's still, I think, probably more wealth than some of the statistics might suggest. And again, it's mostly tied to real estate. But it actually means that a lot of families probably do better than you might think just by looking at their income from their regular jobs. There's also a lot of inherited wealth because there is a traditional culture of owning a property. So a lot of people will just, even by not doing much, inherit a lot of wealth from their parents and grandparents. And I think that, in a way, is what sustains a lot of the future generations. At Oxford, you often look at cross-asset investing. You look at investing country to country. You look at the investability of countries and regions. What is the take on Spain right now? And what is the take on broader Europe? Let's start with broader Europe and then move into Spain. I think that Spain, in this case, benefits from... If we talk about just equities in general or the stock market in Spain, Spain has a benefit, which is its sectoral composition in this case. And what I mean by this is that it has a large banking component, which it has been in the past or in many years a big hindrance. So it was a bit of a problem for the Spanish stock market to do well because banking was not doing well and it had a big weight. Now, that has changed dramatically with the change in the macro environment, with the change in interest rates. And so I think that probably is a big part of why the Spanish store market, for example, has had a pretty good 2022, much better than a lot of European peers, which is something we haven't seen in many years. I think generally speaking, Europe, on the banking side, for example, it does look like there's a bit of turn in the cycle and finally looks like it's quite more investable. But I think with Europe, I'll be a bit careful because I've been hearing also for maybe 10, 20 years about how Europe is so cheap and that it's a great opportunity to invest. 
And that it has never really panned out. So personally, I would think that you have to be a bit careful about just investing on the basis of being relatively cheap. I think growth prospects and revenue prospects just still be like the main driver for investing. And I think Europe, unfortunately, still feels like it's struggling to compete with the United States. I think within that framework, there's still probably pockets of countries or sectors that could be now benefiting from this quite a radical change in the micro cycle. We talked about equity investing and investing in the country's growth, but what about debt? I know that's something you also look at at Oxford. How strong is Spain's debt? How risky is Spain's debt? And who are the main owners of it? Yeah, Spain's debt is always going to be an issue for investors because it has debt levels that are on the highest in Europe. So you have, I think, debt currently around the last number, I think I saw was 113% of GDP. But it's quite high, a bit higher than the Eurozone average. It's come down from the peak of the pandemic. So there's a positive trend now as the country now is growing and also inflation helps. So high inflation deflates debt a bit. So in a way, that's one of the few things that are good about inflation right now is that it's actually deflating some of those debts. I think the trajectory looks sustainable and it looks okay. It's always going to be a risk. And I think eventually there's always going to be a period of risk-off mode where something happens, some big event happens whether that's in Italy or in Greece or even outside of Europe, in which investors get nervous and they start looking at, should I be invested here or not? Spain needs to be conscious that they need to be projecting always a lot of fiscal credibility because of that reason, because investors will always get nervous and the weakest links are always going to be the ones that are attacked first. That being said, I think the outlook for Spain in terms of growth, inflation, interest rates means that the debt levels that we have are sustainable you actually are still paying a lot less on your debt than you used to pay. So you are more indebted, but you pay a lot less, which ultimately is what matters for the government, for the treasury. What matters is how much that debt is costing you. And it's a lot less than it used to be. So I think it should be a bit probably more optimistic than some of the headline figures suggest in terms of indebtedness. But I think Spain needs to be mindful that we'll always be a country that is going to be on investors' crosshairs when things get tough. And in that sense, having a credible fiscal policy is always going to be paramount. You need to make sure that the markets you are borrowing from so heavily, they believe that you really are serious about having a fiscal, fiscal path that is sustainable. Let's go out on this. What are one or two things we should be looking out for over the next two to three years for the Spanish economy that could give us a signal whether things are going to get a lot better or things might get worse? Well, I think for Spain, the one number that people are always a bit surprised or it catches everyone's eyes, the unemployment rate. So the unemployment rate is always going to be higher than the average in the European countries, but that doesn't tell us much. It is still quite low historically. And as long as the unemployment rate is low, I think that tells you that the economy is going to be doing well. But ultimately, unemployment rate is almost like the one number that tells you how consumers are doing. And by extension, what consumers are doing tells you what the economy is doing, especially for a country like Spain that is so services oriented. So that's one number that I would be looking at. If we look at more from the fiscal sustainability that, that you mentioned, for example, the one number that you always have to keep an eye is the bond yield on the sovereign debt or the risk premium versus Germany. If that number remains fixed, as it has been for the last probably five years, it means that investors are just fine. When that number starts to go up, and that happened in 2010, 11, 12, and you could see even news on TV actually opening their stories with that number, which was something that you would never have thought to see. It's a very niche kind of number. If you see that number going up quite high, that's where you see the alarms should be summing up. And that's where I'll be concerned about the Spanish economy getting into trouble. You're from Catalonia. Investopedia is a site built on our financial terms and definitions. Is there a word in Catalonian that really describes the economy that you can share with us and you can share with our listeners? Describing the economy, but for Catalans, the word that we normally use is the same, which means like common sense. And I think that if you 
basically thinking of investing in Catalonia, we probably should be like at least thinking that that's a region that is being always defined by that. Sadly, we lost it a bit in the last few years, but my hope is that we're going to go back to that and people will see us or see at least Catalonia, I don't live there anymore, as a serious place to do business with. Angel Talavera from Oxford Economics, thanks so much for joining The Express. We appreciate it. Muchas gracias. Thank you very much. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Jaybird7, who hit us up on Instagram. Jaybird suggests terminal value this week. And we like that term because in today's environment of slowing earnings growth, terminal value is a smart way of assessing the future value of a company, any company. According to Investopedia, terminal value is the value of an asset, business, or project beyond the forecasted period when future cash flows can be estimated. Terminal value assumes a business will grow at a set growth rate forever after the forecast period, and it often comprises a large percentage of the total assessed value. If you're analyzing a business, you can use the discounted cash flow model, DCF, to calculate its total value, and for that, you need both the forecast period and the terminal value. The two most common methods for calculating terminal value are perpetual growth, that's the Gordon growth model, and the exit multiple. The perpetual growth method assumes that a business will generate cash flows at a constant rate forever, while the exit multiple method assumes that a business will eventually be sold. Learn more about how to value a business, public or private, on Investopedia.com, making investors smarter since 1999. Thanks, Jaybird, for helping make us a little smarter this week. DM us your address and we'll send you a pair of our world-famous socks, also guaranteed to make you feel smarter. Thanks for joining us this week and muchas gracias a Barcelona por una visita fantástica, una ciudad muy especial. We'll let DJ Mati kick us out this week. He's a freestyle rapper I met on the Barcelona subway and he made my day. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line. Hola, bienvenidos al show, yo. Una amiga vino desde Amazon, yo tengo frase, voy sacando mi caparazón, guardo el espejo, el reflejo que quiero, voy haciendo rimas mientras con el ritmo me llevo, ey, llevo la carpeta con todos los papeles, llevo esta rima con todo lo que se viene, una, pensé que era una nota musical, pero en realidad era un zapato, como si fuera cenicienta, esto no va a la cuenta, Sepo se presenta, es así, yo voy rapeando y nada se lo inventa, el campeón va jugando un juego casi gana, como de Dragon Ball, yo rapeando en la sala, la perrita me escuchaba, ¿todo bien?